CliffCentral.com. It's your favorite podcast, Roman. And your favorite host, me. <laughs> Just singular. Yes. Singular, of course. Absolutely. The Renegade Report, a, another fun-filled episode. Well, we don't know yet. It could be really awful. And not due to our guest, due to us. Or the guest. I mean, he might be terrible. Never blame the guest. Never. At he's, least not till after the show. He's a white male. He's, he's immediately responsible. I'm sorry. Um... So, uh, blocked uh, uh, yet again on Twitter, Ramon. You, you know, you, you can't help yourself. The problem with being blocked is that I'm creating, people are creating a safe space for me. <laughs> because I can't listen to other opinions now. Yes, blocked by the Mail and Guardian, which is fantastic in a way. You haven't pissed off the Daily Pox enough to the be Daily blocked. The Daily, the Daily Pox actually has a bit of humor on Twitter, to be honest. Thankfully so. Okay. The so they don't, take, they don't get too sensitive. No. Though... The recommendations for um, having free education is to cut the VC's salaries, which will save 10 million rand a year. <laughs> really? Well, you know, you want them to understand economics. Um, they barely understand how to run a newspaper. We need so. 120 billion rand, so we will save 10 million by cutting VC's fees, I mean salaries. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway. let's. Well, we, that's what we're talking about today. We're talking all about not not the fees. We, we're done with the fees. Uh, exams are well underway at many universities. Uh, fees must fall has failed. Uh, I'm happy to report. Um, this is re- being recorded in advance. Let's hope they failed. Oh well, you know, sure they could set fire to everything, um, not just a couple of libraries, and then then we'd be in real trouble. Um, but uh, let's get on to important stuff like uh, our media. Do we have uh, what, what what we call the mainstream media? Because we are part of the media. Have you noticed we? when they when they do something right, they like being called the media, and then when they do something wrong, they're like, "You can't put us in this monolithic group. It's not fair." But all white people have privilege. Okay, all right. So that's on, what they say. And, true. And on that note, let's talk to another white person. Um, so our guest today, thank you so much for joining us, is Gus Silber. If that name sounds familiar to you, even if you haven't met him, it's because you probably follow him on Twitter. Um, he is one of the pioneers of Twitter in South Africa. Uh, describes himself as someone that plays with words, sometimes works with them. Uh, and he's also a journalist, author, scriptwriter, speechwriter, and tweetwriter. So you write many things, guys. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Roman. Yeah, so... Right. I mean, well, let, let's get on to it. Um, in, in a general sense, how do you view uh, the role of media, and is it living up to that role, in, tw- as my favorite intellectual says, in 2016? Mm, yeah. Look, I think it's not so much the role of media that's important as the role of individual journalists. And I think individual journalists, and once again, that's a very, very broad term these days, but the role of a journalist, the primary role of a journalist is to try and make sense of what's happening in the world, is to try and kind of filter the chaos into meaning, because we live in absolute chaos. Uh, we live in a chaotic universe, and we live in a chaotic world and a chaotic society. So a journalist's role should be to seize that chaos and to kind of try and make sense of it and to filter it so that it somehow kind of forms a meaning, not the meaning, but a meaning. I think that's a journalist's role. If a journalist can do that, uh, if they can kind of make sense of the chaos, then they are playing some 
important role. The media as a whole, obviously, uh, is their role is to mediate in society, to kind of act as a go-between between what happens and the uh, reader out there or the viewer. So the me- the term means they're in the middle. They are in the middle of everything, in the middle of the chaos and in the middle of the information war that's going on. Yes. So, so I mean, classically, in my mind, I've, I've done zero research. Um, one would assume that the <laughs> You're role like a good journalist. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you've answered my, 24 or what? <laughs> I think you've answered my question already. Um, but, but classically speaking, one – my expectation of a journalist is to is to have a certain set of facts presented to them through multiple sources or, or whatever the case might be and just relay them in a way that's uh, easy to understand and palatable to an ordinary reader of that content. Yeah. Um, so that's traditionally called reporting. Yes. And then yeah. in a newspaper specifically, there's another area called analysis. Yeah. And that is an opinion on those said facts, yeah. well, I assume. Well, reporting, of course, isn't purely gathering facts and isn't purely research. It's seeing things through your eyes uh, and then relaying them through the medium that you're working on, which these days could be anything from a radio broadcast to a tweet. Um, but any two journalists, any two reporters will not see the same story through the same eyes. Sure. Uh, because we're not machines, because we're not robots, and thank goodness for that, um, that there's a diversity of opinions. And that's why I think people forget and why you kind of have the media referred to as, a, as if it's a singular entity when it's actually massively plural. Um, so, so absolutely, reporting is, is one thing, analysis is another, but the diversity means that, that you actually have to, to be a media consumer rather than a consumer of a single medium. Otherwise, you'll go crazy just having one point of view forced into your head. So uh, we, don't we have that problem in South Africa? We've got uh, uh, which radio station? Nine million listeners to – is it a Cozy FM? Cozy FM, yes. Uh, you know, that's, that's our yeah. kind of largest um, mass media consumption uh, I think radio is the biggest uh, yeah. is the biggest one. Um, newspapers, our big newspapers, the Daily Sun. Daily Sun. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, is that what's happening to some South Africans? They get one source. Yeah. Um, well, look, I think we I think we're very lucky. I think we've got a vigorously free press. It really is vigorous, absolutely, and it's a fighting press as well. Um, it fights to make its opinions heard. It fights against government interference. It's one of the great things about South Africa is its free press. Uh, I think people who don't broaden their horizons and who don't consume multiple media are actually letting themselves down. So if you want to just read one paper a day or listen to one radio station, that's entirely your right. But if you are doing it, you're missing out on a multiplicity of opinions, some of which will drive you crazy and some of which will make you very angry. But I think it's your duty as a citizen of this Constitutional democracy to massively be a promiscuous consumer of media. Otherwise, otherwise, yeah, you're letting yourself down. Yeah, it's like us. I mean, we, we tell our listeners to listen to a whole lot of other podcasts and then dismiss them entirely, except for ours, of course, because <laughs> we're the only purveyors of truth uh, in the podcast industry. Um, you talked about the media being in the middle, uh, and, uh, you know, Ramon gave a nice idea of, you know, ideologically what happens with reporting and journalism. But hasn't that really changed? Uh, and isn't part of the problem now that 
media doesn't sit in the middle anymore. They very often take sides. They, uh, if you look at political races, they either sit on the left or on the right uh, or with a specific party. But without actually saying so. Yeah. yeah I, well, we've said that. on previous shows, for example, ANN7 is yeah. quite refreshing yes. in that everyone knows exactly where yeah. they stand. Yeah. Um, whereas other newspapers try to pretend like there's no bias. Yes. Um, which, you know, other than if you, if they're allowing uh, people to uh, make editorial um, comments. Uh, the paper itself generally is do go that way, websites, etc. So, do they really stand in the middle anymore, or is yeah. this bias? And is the bias a problem? Yeah, I think they only stand in the middle in the sense that they are a medium. So, a newspaper is a medium standing in the middle of what happens and the reader. But absolutely, uh, you know, uh, uh, being a journalist also means striving as far as possible to present all sides of the picture. Hence, you're standing in the middle, listening to the left, listening to the right, listening to the middle, and kind of weaving as many of those thoughts and viewpoints into your story as you possibly can. But uh, it's an illusion, and it's a myth, and it's actually dangerous to, to assume that Media and journalists are completely neutral in world affairs. Um, that's why I think, you know, you have to read the Man and Guardian. You have to try and read the Daily Sun. You have to read the Sunday Times. You have to broaden your horizons. And the beauty of the world we live in is that this, you can do this globally. Yeah. I think you have to kind of open yourself to right-wing views, to ultra-left-wing views, so that you kind of – so that you actually effectively stand in the middle of all these viewpoints, and then you make your mind up. Um, but journalists, absolutely, I've never met a single journalist who didn't have a very, very strong set of viewpoints, <laughs> but those viewpoints could change from day to day. <laughs> so yeah. while you have strong viewpoints, your viewpoints shift according to what you discover and according to what the story is. And that's what makes journalism interesting. It's not kind of fixed in, in place. It, it shifts with the news. The news is dynamic and ever-changing, and journalists, too, kind of flow with it. But how important do you think is it for a media content provider to show its bias? Or, or just to state out front, we are uh, socially liberal, we are financially yeah. liberal, and we think the Constitution is great. So everything we will print is from this lens or yeah. ideology. Yeah. How important well, do you think Well, journalists talk about angles, okay? So an angle is like how you approach uh, a story. I think we had a really good example of it a few weeks ago when the public protector left her office. And almost every newspaper had stories about how wonderful she'd been and the farewell to me and we're going to miss you. Uh, and the New Age had a story <laughs> about the public protector's son having dented her car and uh, she owed 750,000 rand uh, to the government. Yes. That actually was a good story. <laughs> and that was actually the one Tully story that stuck in my mind. But the New Age was completely pinning its colors to the mast. Uh, with that story That was like a story That the government And the ANC Would have loved to see Sure you know, a, a different angle On the public protector But if you only read The New Age You'll think That the public protector Is somebody who goes around uh, Kind of not paying her bills Right So you have to Kind of spread your thoughts But but bias Absolutely evident there Is it a good or a bad thing I think it's a good thing Because many uh, different biases Taken together Give you a bigger picture Of the truth Well I think it's a wonderful thing But I think people Aren't honest about yeah. Portraying their biases Or, or actually saying my bias is this. Yeah. Um, well, I think the new age is, is unashamedly pro ANC. Yeah. I think ANN7 is unashamedly pro. Um, I think the Mail and Guardian is unashamedly kind of liberal left leaning newspaper. Unashamedly um, you know, anti DA. I think the worst is kind of sitting absolutely the in the middle. The clerk told you to say that. <laughs> 
and not having a viewpoint. Not having an, as a newspaper, you, what you should also do is kind of guide people, not just inform them, but guide them. And this is why, you know, nail your colors to the mast. If you want to support Trump as a newspaper, do so. If you want to support Hillary, if you want to stand in the middle, absolutely fine. I mean, classically, the star in the, in the 80s was a very kind of middle of the road paper. Mm. And they once kind of, there was one election where they said everyone must go and, and you must please spoil your papers, which is like an absolute cop out, you know, right. sit in the middle and, and, and spoil your paper. At, at the time, it was a quite a bold move to make, but they made a move. They couldn't decide what the move was, but they kind of made one. And I think it's good when, when, you know, when newspapers have got vigorous opinions, but it's also good when inside those pages people clash, when their opinions clash with each other. I want to have a paper where somebody can kind of say one thing and turn the next page and there's a completely contrary point of view. Hmm. So journalists should have independent, strong views. The paper as a whole can have a singular kind of approach to politics, which is fine. What's the effect you know, over many decades, the way journalism is done uh, and the sort of financial drive, etc., has changed the way journalism happens. So, uh, you know, I've got friends who are journalists. They get yeah. paid very poorly, even if they do great work. Um, yeah. um, <clears throat> people who are hired are often not great at what they do because, you know, the whole uh, pay peanuts, get monkeys argument. Yeah. Uh, and so what kind of impact do you think that's had on kind of quality journalism, uh, the understanding of journalism as, as what you've described it as rather than me just writing like my crazy yeah. sh- thoughts on, on paper? Yeah. Yeah. Look, you know, I'm sure other people have said this to you, but it is kind of very much a, a calling. It's something people do because they kind of they want to work with words or they want to kind of have influence in the world. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it is not a highly paid profession. Many journalists move out of journalism. There are many, many journalists in government mm. uh, working as spin doctors. There are journalists. Uh, or premiers uh, of provinces. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, be- the best example is Helen Zilla, who I think I still think of as a journalist. You know, she still has the instincts of a journalist. She writes well. She kind of has just released her, her, her book, which is a journalistic kind of documentary story of, of her life. But um, people become journalists not for the money, absolutely. Even editors don't make uh, um, a lot of money compared to other professionals. Uh, so you kind of become a journalist for a variety of reasons, and absolutely one of them is ego. I mean, you know, the power of having a medium in your control uh, and having your words kind of read by people and being taken seriously, you know. Yeah. And then you may not actually even mean what you're writing. You may have an opinion that is like, this is a very strong opinion, and then you go home and you have a completely contrary opinion. In other words, you're, a, you're an agent provocateur, you know. So you've got the freedom to do that. So journalism has benefits. Um, there's an annual survey in America of like the most stressful occupations, the, the, the least trusted, the worst professions to be in. And year after year, journalism is like almost like the top of the worst. It's so stressful. It's so underpaid. Mm. But why do people become journalists? Because there are so many benefits and, and also the ability to kind of do this, to kind of try and make sense of the world is a huge philosophical challenge. And if you kind of can do it, you're performing a, positive role and get you a little bit of a glow, you know, that you've done yes, something. Yeah. What, what do you make of the trust thing? Because yeah. uh, the trust, the one survey from the state says yeah. that trust in American media is around 8 or 9%. Yes. So yeah. 90% of people basically think anything they watch, read, or, or, yeah. or see, see online is, is rubbish. This is the great irony of our, I think that there are many examples in South Africa. 
It's a great irony. So fees must fall. I know it's one of your favorite topics, but um, love it. But uh, the, you know, fees must fall has a demonstration, and uh, and journalists come. You are quite obviously journalists as opposed to just bystanders. And certain people in the demonstration chase them away. We don't want media here. Go away. We hate you. Uh, and then the next day on Twitter. The big complaints because the journalists didn't cover a certain feasible yes. format. So journalists are loathed and kind of uh, wanted in in equal measure. It's something that I think that comes with with the territory. But people will trust what kind of fits with their prejudices. So if you read a story and it's about someone you don't like politically, you'll say, "Ah, oh, great story! At last they're exposing Tuli." <laughs> <laughs> Because it fits in with your prejudices. So you'll trust that report and you won't trust another one that paints somebody who you admire in a negative light. So very often when people say they don't trust the media, it's they're not liking what they see in the media. And the trust is actually more kind of a skepticism and a disbelief. Um, because I think there are mechanisms in place, you know, um, to ensure that what journalists write has got some element of credibility in it. At least you hope so. Um, but, but, they, but they're slowly destroying those those uh, feedback loops. So they they close down comments because of trolling, for yeah. example, which I think is a, trolling is real. Yeah. Um, some say I'm a grandmaster <laughs> troll, um, but also but they, some they, say <laughs> it's like an introduction on Tolkien. <laughs> yeah. Helen Zilla told me <laughs> Helen Zilla told me I'm a troll. So oh, there you okay. go. Yeah. Helen Zilla was 100 percent spot on. Yeah, carry on. Well, did you see what she wrote in my, in my book? She yeah, said from, from one troll to another. <laughs> yes, there keep on go. fighting. So she says. Yeah. As I keep on trolling, is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah. Anyway, so I mean, they close down comments. Yeah. Um, I'm not too sure how popular it is to write letters to newspapers anymore. <laughs> yeah. I don't read newspapers in, yeah. in the physical copy. So, uh, don't you f- maybe feel that some and all they block people on Twitter? Um, just by the way, and, yeah. but don't you think that those sort of practices are, are making some journalists or some uh, media providers a bit more insular. They're creating a so-called safe space for the for their own self without feedback loops. And in the only feedback loop yeah. they got is circulation numbers. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. Sure. I mean, metrics are now incredibly important. How many people clicked on your article on Twitter? How many people RT'd? How many people liked you on Facebook? These are very very important uh, figures for 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 newspapers. Yeah. Look, personally, I think it's a pity when a paper like or let's say a, a platform like News Twenty Four or a, a a medium like Daily Maverick decides to close their comments. I think it's a pity because, um, uh, you know, one thing I used to like on News 24 was reading a story, provocative story, a big important news story, and thinking to yourself with your finger hovering over the mouse, should I venture <laughs> south of the of, of You can the still line? do it on YouTube comments. <laughs> it's, it's often yeah. the biggest mistake of your life. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. absolutely. Look, I, you know, I believe – I would – I believe firmly like in First Amendment principles, as the Americans would say, you know. Um, I don't know. How dangerous is it to have comments on, on a news site? It's incredibly irritating. It can cause upset. It can cause people to kind of uh, run screaming. It can cause them to tweet. Uh, but ultimately, it's just people voicing opinions. And I think you have – you can have elements in place. The Guardian – one of my favorite papers, has very, very lively comment sections, but they are very, very strict. They will not allow comments on issues to do with Islam because the Islamophobia comes to the play and, right. and it turns into uh, – it turns it gets very ugly very quickly on all sides of the equation. So they simply impose very strict rules and they've got very smart and savvy moderators. Right. In South Africa, the excuse often is that there are no resources. There aren't enough resources to have somebody moderating. 
But I do think it's it's a pity. I think it's a missing element. I totally agree with you that the feedback loop is closed and and it should be open. Right. I mean, sorry, Jonathan. The best mm. part of the Daily Maverick when it started was the comments, mm. yes, especially on Ivo Vechter's columns because yeah. he responded to every single exactly. one. Yeah. So you'd have the the piece. So he would write his piece of a thousand words, and his comments yeah. would be like five thousand words after yeah. two three days. I mean, he, right. the amount of knowledge you gain just from seeing back and forth yeah. between. Reasonable commentators and the yeah. author. It was fantastic. Yeah. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the Maverick is a prime example of like kind of coffeehouse metaphor of, of, of news media. So like, you know, a coffeehouse traditionally is a place where people gather and have coffee. They get a little bit wired. They stay there for hours and hours. They sit and they talk about the politics of the day and, and then they argue with each other. And then everyone at the end of the day kind of goes home and goes and goes and does their own thing. So the Maverick was a good coffeehouse. Uh, because you could actually argue directly with the author, um, which is something you can't really do on many media. And to have it not there, it's like the coffee shop's closed. Sorry, mm. we don't serve coffee anymore. It's pretty, uh, I think. You mentioned you buy sort of First Amendment principles. So basically, that's just freedom of speech and yeah. freedom of the press. Um, yeah. And I'm just... You know, it occurs to me that I don't buy the moderation thing. I just think I don't believe that words can really hurt you. Mm. Um, I've, you know, made my views on freedom of speech quite clear. Um, And I just think that even if horrible things happened online uh, and people just started shouting complete obscenities, racist stuff at each other. So what? At some point, you can only shout that well, not shout, but type in capital letters. (laughs) Um, You can only type in capital letters so much at the next guy before you go, okay, well, this is kind of done. Um, and I, I just, I don't see the point in, in that kind of censorship. Uh, and I'm seeing it happening more and more everywhere. So, uh, you've got, uh, Facebook and yeah. Twitter instituting rules. Yeah. Uh, you know, the famous one now, obviously, is Twitter banning, um, Milo Yiannopoulos, yes. uh, off, off, off Twitter, um, because of something his fans yeah. did essentially. Um, which they felt he directed. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, words. It's, yeah. it's words. So don't you think this damages discourse? Oh, yeah. No, look, absolutely. I mean, this is a major, major issue of debate in the country at the moment because the proposed uh, hate crimes and hate speech bill has just been released for, for comment. And the uh, good thing is that people are commenting vigorously on it and are kind of looking at it as potentially something that will damage our society in, in the long run. Um, but I think, I think the South African mind as a whole is in danger of being closed. Um, if laws are instituted that effectively kind of police your thoughts. One thing you can't do is police people's thoughts. Absolutely. But, um, you know, policing what people say is really the very small crossing of the line beyond that. Uh, and I think there are so many mechanisms built into a civilized democratic society to kind of curb or at least deal with harmful, hateful speech. I mean, in the U.S., you've got complete freedom of speech. There's no hate speech clause in the First Amendment. However, if you send an email to President Obama threatening him and saying that you're going to come around and blow up the White House, the FBI will knock on your door pretty quickly. So there's certain things that you just don't say because the rules of society are kind of ingrained in you. So you use your freedom of speech wisely and you know where the limits are. But there's nothing to stop you from burning those stars and stripes outside the White House if you really want to. Yeah, uh, yeah you can stand on a soapbox in Hyde Park in England where they don't even have a constitution, you know, and you can say what you want to. Uh, terror laws come into place partly because of the age we live in and they kind of are effectively kind of hate speech clauses. But, you know, I don't know whether free society actually needs such a thing as a hate speech bill. 
Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we, we, we have been a free society for 20 years yeah. and arguably becoming a bit less free as time yeah. goes on. Um, so I don't think there's an ingrained culture of freedom of speech in the country as yet. Yeah. So yeah, we kind of, we are grappling with it. You know, 22 yes. years is, is, is not a long time. No, we, not at all. We no. still actually are surprised that we can use it. I think we come from a, a, a tradition of, of such repressive control of, of, uh, of what we say and what we do in public that sometimes you get the feeling that people just shout out like, like what's on, what's in their deepest kind of heads. They just shout it out because they're like, hey, thinking. I can do it. Yeah, sure. And then, yeah. then subsequently they think. And then the classic apology, I'm sorry if I've offended anybody. Although, <laughs> although it seems like it's very much uh, the old sort of saying of I, you know, Stand by your right to say whatever you want as yeah. long as I agree with it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the hate crimes bill, for example, very much to me looks like uh, shutting down those people we disagree with who say things that are not allowed to be said. Uh, yeah. you, you, if I use by way of an example, Penny Sparrow says yeah. something abhorrent. Yeah. Um, she gets taken to court, equality court, and, and, and slapped with a fine. Yeah. Uh, someone around the same time provoked by her, um, says something just as abhorrent, yeah. perhaps worse, because he actually called for violence. Um, and, uh, nothing yeah. to the best of my knowledge has happened to that person. I, yeah. I, I, I think that's name. a question of, that's a question yeah. of application of the law correctly as opposed to, to the law itself. Um, yeah. Both yeah. of them in ideal situation, both of them would have been slapped with a fine, but yeah. in an ideal situation, not for me, yeah. just according to the law now, mm. yeah. in terms of the Perpuda Act or whatever yeah. it's called. Look, I think also, you know, each and every case is is different, and you often hear people saying, well, this happened to X, why didn't it also happen to Y? You, know? yeah. um, you hear it a lot every time there's a court case, you know, well, Oscar Pistorius only got six years, and this person gets ten years. Each case is very different, but I'd rather live in a society where people actually air their thoughts. Rather than kind of keep them concealed and have kind of clandestine meetings where they kind of uh, get together and then say what they want to. Yeah. I think a free society, look, I think you also, you know your own limitations. I mean, we, we, there's no society in the world, and certainly ours isn't one, where you can simply wander in the streets voicing your thoughts. If you did, it would be a very dangerous world to live in. So you keep, you constantly self-censor. You can't, you, you don't always say exactly what you think. Certain people do say exactly what's on their mind and they're mm. known for being provocative, but most of us, you know, if you work in an office, you don't walk, walk in, in the morning and say exactly what you think about your coworkers, you know. Sure, or your boss. Or yeah, exactly, yeah. Likewise, the same, the same applies to the political arena. So you kind of think before you speak, and I think that takes care for the most part of, uh, of, of, of discourse. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I think people should say what's on what's on their mind. I mean, I think we fundamentally, I mean, we fundamentally agree on a lot of things. So, so hate speech shouldn't really be a a, a criminal yeah. prosecution. People should be free, no matter how vile they are. They should be free mm. to say what they want. Except the comedians. That's the one good part about the hate speech. That's correct. <laughs> comedians can go to prison for up to ten years. So if we jail most of them, we should have solved a lot of the problem. Well, if we jail most of them, South Africa would be a funnier place. <laughs> yeah. True story. True story. <laughs> I was, I was thinking of this today. <laughs> Thank I, you. I, I was thinking that you know, the funniest stand-up comedian to me, the best stand-up comedian in South Africa, and I'm, I'm saying this seriously, is Julius Malema. He's got an amazing <laughs> sense of timing. He he, he, does, he comes up with the most amazing catchphrases that really hit the nail on the head. He's able to work up a crowd. He's able to get them laughing, which yes. not many politicians can do. Yeah. But I almost feel like Malema on circuit almost renders vast numbers of stand-up comics in South Africa irrelevant. 
our stand-up comics here, I think they censor themselves a lot. Sure. There are a few who kind of are unafraid to say what they, what they want. Yes. But for me, the, the, the vast majority of them, yeah, I love stand-up well, comedy, but I feel like Malema is funnier than all of them. One, one of the big problems with, with the stand-up comedians is that comedy has always been about going against the norm or bringing yeah. up ideas, concepts uh, that are against the norm. Yeah. And or, the norm ju- or just saying what other people are thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it can't be said. Yeah. Um, and I, I find our comedians, certainly from, pol- and they're very political, our yeah. comedians generally, um, or they're political minded. So they, they sit very far on the left and the left yeah. is kind of where everything's at. Exactly. Uh, especially in our country. We do, I think that, that's false. I don't think it's, it's an ideology. I think it's what will get them corporate gigs the most. Yeah. Cause that's yeah. where the money <laughs> is, right? Yeah, no, sure. So they, Discovery they, hires you. You're not going to talk about Nkandla. Yeah, You're going to talk about white people in suburbs or yeah. or BEE tender. Look, I'm a successful stand-up comedian, no doubt. Is is Trevor Noah, who's gone on to you know to host the Daily Show, which is yeah. an absolute and dream he, gig. But and he's not funny. No, no, I don't. I don't think he's, he's, he's. Well, he actually is funny in his yeah. stand-up shows. Yeah, I, I find him. I find funny. him quite funny in his stand-up shows. Yeah, I think. Exactly what I'm saying, yeah. you say, well, or trying to say at least, is what's happened to him on that daily, um, yeah. that daily show, which is that he's trying to push a certain sort of agenda. Yeah. And that's probably coming from the network and other people, yeah. his writers, etc. Um, for, because for various reasons, I don't think Trevor fully yeah. buys the completely, I love Hillary and, yeah. you know, and Bernie's a great guy sort of argument. Um, but, uh, he's, he's sort of pushing that and, and, you know, if you look at great comics, uh, of, of generations past, yeah. and George Carlin is the sort of, yes. the icon, uh, he, he just took on things you couldn't say or do. Yes. I mean, you know, that skit where he goes, the seven things you can't yes. say on television. Right. Uh, and if you, if you haven't ever seen it or heard yeah. it, um, go, go look it up. It's hilarious. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, in, I think it was in the seventies to stand right. up and he sort went, of. He went to jail for that. Uh, no, it was Lenny Bruce who went to jail for obscenity. Yeah. So Lenny, Lenny Bruce was Cops for saying uh, a, a rude word, one of one yeah. of George Collins' rude words, and and Lenny Bruce actually he kind of completely collapsed and he eventually died of a drug overdose. And this happened in America yes. in in the sixties. Um, so you know to think that someone could kind of be be arrested for saying a dirty word on a stage, not in the public, on a stage you know, that shows you how far we've come in terms of our overall Western concept mm. of freedom of speech. Right. But, and the South African comedy circuit, I think, you know, for me, the guy I actually like the most and whose gig I would go and see is Deep Fried Man. I think he's very funny. I think he's got a good shtick. I think his little hat and his beard and his guitar, he kind of does something different to the other guys. Yeah, actually, yeah. Bro, I went to go see him once or twice. He's actually pretty good. Yeah, I think yeah he's funny. Poli- he's kind of sweet. Politically, and he also we, makes a we point far too. apart. But <laughs> he's not, yeah. he's not yeah. shocking. But, but you're quite right. Mo- most stand-up comedians tend to come from the left side of the spectrum. Yeah, I just and, want them to push the envelope either yeah. way. I mean, yeah. you know, if you're from the left, then, then push the right hard. Like, yeah, but right. like the, the sort of, you know, what you're talking about, the whites in the suburbs, it's such an old and tired sort of yeah. meme. Yeah. Um, if you want to push true. it, push it. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I just, I just, I feel that, that that's where what's, what's lacking. Really good comedy, like you said, is the thing you are right. thinking, but yeah. are too scared to say. And, and right. Gus, you know, yeah. do you know Doug Stanhope? Uh, no, I don't actually. You don't know well, you have Netflix. You I know you have Netflix. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's yeah. a there's a, a show called the Beer Putch Hall. Okay. Beer Hall Putch. Uh, Sorry, of Doug Stanhope. Yeah. And I won't. Okay, you haven't seen it yet, but yeah. there's a story about his mother dying. Yeah. At his house, mm-hmm. and this is a true story, and it's about credit card fraud and how he helped her die. It is yeah. phenomenal. 
And he yeah. says the story a few years after the fact yeah. Due to some legal reasons that you'll see <laughs> Once you see the show But it is a phenomenal piece of comedy Which is yes. based on a true tragic event yeah. About his mother wanting to die Absolutely, I mean, you know The, the line between Tragedy and comedy is incredibly thin. And a good stand-up comic, I think, will reduce you to tears of laughter one moment and kind of tears of poignancy the next. Mm. I don't think we have too many of those people in our society. I think one reason for it is that we have a completely self-satirizing political system. So (laughs) how, how can you possibly get up on a stage and make people laugh after a day like today? You know, how can, how can you kind of equal in, in comedy and satire the reality of Des von Royen? Right. All you can do is try and give him a funny name, Two Minute Noodles. That's funny. You can try and name a uh, weekend, weekend special. special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or Oris, you know. Yes. That's funny. Whoever came up with that is a comedian. Uh, it's the same thing as football nicknames. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in football leagues. They're very often very funny and descriptive. But to be a satirist, to be a stand-up comedian, wow, you've got so much competition from everyday reality in this country. It's hard. Cause I was, go- I was gonna say, when you yeah. said the guy who can make you laugh and then sort of kind of cry at yeah. the same time, uh, are our satirists, you know, yes. Zapiro, uh, he seems to have yeah. gone quiet after being smacked down yes, for the organ has, grinder. Actually, yeah. But, um, you know, he, he was able to make you kind of, Laugh. I'm thinking of that Lady Justice yes. um, cartoon, which was kind of, yeah. you know, dark, sort of dark humor, yeah. but deeply disturbing at the same yeah. time. Um, and 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 we've we've kind of we've, we've got guys that that sort of push that envelope. Yeah. Look, the hate speech bill. If you read, there's a clause in there that actually, legally speaking, makes it an offence to ridicule or hold in contempt people based on their trade or occupation. Which yeah. is incredibly broad and which actually means that, you know, you can't anymore ridicule the president because his trade is being ridiculed. Right. So, of course, that, that will never make it to law. But the very fact that someone in the office somewhere put that clause in means that, that there's a sense that you shouldn't kind of ridicule certain kinds of people. Maybe it was the accountant in, 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 in that particular <laughs> office. Maybe they're like, I'm tired of no, being seen as a bean it counter. It was the lawyer. Yeah. Well, definitely the lawyer. Yeah. Bloody shock. Yeah. But actually, guys, I actually wanted to talk to you. Yeah. Speaking of comedy and free speech in general, this concept of punching down and punching up. Yeah. So we make fun of those that are more powerful than us. Yeah. We never make fun of hashtag persecuted minorities. Yes. What do you, how does that fit into free speech, do you think? Do you think that's a valid yeah. defense of limiting free speech in a way or, yeah. or not at all? Yeah. Well, this is the classic argument. Um, forgive me, I've actually forgotten the name. The famous French satirical magazine that had a terror. Charlie Charlie Hebdo. Hebdo. Yes, yeah. The big, uh, the big kind of complaint against them from many people, including strong defenders of free speech, is that they punch down to minorities when they should be punching up at, at politicians. Um, and, you know, it requires a certain kind of madness to do that, to even think of doing that and to kind of call it humor. But if you look at the history of satire, traditions of humor over the years, people punch in all directions. You yes. know, Jonathan Swift, uh, the great uh, satirist in his day, um, you know, there was no kind of line drawn. I think Comedy, real comedy, and going all the way back to the to the Greeks, kind of doesn't draw lines. It kind of punches up and it punches down and sideways and all over the place. In fact, that's actually what makes it funny is that it's completely scattershot. 
yes. but however, the great comedians of our age, of our kind of uh, uh, era, like George Carlin, they're actually profound philosophers. I mean, Carlin is funny, uh, but yeah. part of the reason why he's funny is because he's telling Absolutely. the truth. Uh, he's phenomenal. And the truth is very funny when you kind of pinpoint it on a stage yes. under a spotlight. So, yeah, that kind of com- comedy makes me personally uncomfortable. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, Which the, one? the Charlie Hebdo, you know, uh, yeah, the Charlie yeah, Hebdo yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, I find it uncomfortable. I don't find kind of, uh, uh, the humor kind of doesn't sort of work for me. But at the same time, you know, that is the history of comedy and the history of satire is that you are, you know, the phrase equal opportunity offender comes yes. from, from, from there. Um, but they, they're an extreme. They're an extreme example of, uh, of what can happen to satirists. In society, and it's a yeah. tragic example. Yeah, but, but the good thing about living in a in a relatively capitalistic world is that that sort of satire still has a market because they're still existing. Yeah. I mean, if no one actually wanted to read them, yeah. they wouldn't be around. Well, so. also, it's also the comedy of of shock and horror. Uh, and yes. there's, an, there's an idea that comedy shouldn't have to obey the rules of of decorum; that it should actually shock you as much as tragedy does. So that's that's their philosophy, that's their theory, and it's a very French existentialist theory that all life is actually meaningless, and you know that's where it comes from. You you won't see that in many other societies. Yeah, well, that's a that's a, a a dictum that I actually follow. I don't think yeah. life has meaning, but <laughs> nevertheless. So to, nihilist. So talking about satire in general, especially here in the media. So we I have a, a cartoonist friend, and he complains, or he used to at least, that a lot of cartoons were actually censored. Yeah. By Media houses, um, yeah. big big ones, uh, yes. massive multi-billion rand ones. Yeah. Now, no, the, none of them make that much money. Multi-million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Prime media is massive. Are we allowed to drop? Are we allowed to say them online? No, it's, uh, it was Prime Media. At the well, time. they are listening, so yeah. and, and, I'll come to give them a shout. And out. ENCA, yeah, they are listening to us. So, so he was bemoaning the fact that a lot of these cartoons that that were overly political, yeah, were always uh, censored. Yes. By the editors. Yeah. Now, that is a form of self-censorship, not a form of state censorship. However, yeah. it is a form of state censorship because if the governing party is unhappy, they withdraw advertising yeah. from prime media or whomever. Yeah. Now, that is insidious. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Because yeah. can we really trust editors then yeah. if they self-censor? Yeah. Look, you know, this comes back to what you were saying earlier about bias. Now, an editor is not going to hire for their left-wing paper cartoonists with known right-wing views. Like, just not going to happen. Right. Um, but if they hire a cartoonist and he undergoes a shift in thinking, as often happens, and suddenly his cartoons kind of adopt a little bit of a, too much of an anti-government or too much of a kind of, let's call it right-wing, which in South Africa is a pretty meaningless term. But let's say he starts producing Cartoons that doesn't fit in with the editor's point of view. Um, cartoonists, more than writers, are going to find themselves uh, censored because of that. Of course, editors won't ever use the term censorship. They simply say editing. So editing right. is actually a form of, of censorship, sure. uh, but a kind of positive form. In other words, if you just had to put in everything as it came in raw, it would be unreadable and unpalatable. So you kind of, you kind of maneuver and you take out things and you, and you fix things. Um, but with cartoonists, you kind of, they are the mavericks of a newsroom. So in a sense, you give them far more leeway than other people would have. Uh, but certainly they need to argue a lot. So Zapira, in his career, has had to argue a lot about why his cartoon should go in as it is. Someone like Jim, Jeremy Nell, actually lost his job at the, at the New Age because he was kind of not fitting in with their worldview. A good f- f- uh, cartoonist will, will be an iconoclast as well. 
Um, so every now and again they'll come up with something that is contrary to the newspaper's point of view. But it will go right back to the hiring. It'll be like, no, you're sorry, you're not really in line with our editorial kind of philosophy or, or strategy. If a newspaper wants to sack a cartoonist because their political views are out of sync, it's completely fine. You know, it's like. No, that is fine. Yeah. But, but I think it was more of a case of the government funds them so much. Yeah. That they worried about the government funding being pooled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, through, ad- sure. through the advertising. Yeah. Uh, that's what it is. Look, so, I think one of the positive, positive developments in this country in line with that is that our president withdrew all these defamation cases against Zapira and a few other uh, satirists. Yes. Uh, so he realized that there was no way under our constitution that his cases were He seems to have up. a habit of withdrawing cases. <laughs> yes, that's right. He's very good. <laughs> that's, about all, that's about all he's withdrawing. He's like, like, must be honest. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. Never, in, in, in any other aspects of his life, he never withdrew. <laughs> um, yeah. So, all right. You on Twitter, yeah. you, you clearly enjoy Twitter. Yeah. Um, you... Ramon often says you 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 always happy. He wants to know how. Um, so maybe you can give us uh, the answer well, to. Well, you see, I think that comes back again to to yeah, and uh, it's a horrible word censorship. So maybe maybe more of it is kind of uh, self control. Maybe let's say you know. So like very often on Twitter, I'm like kind of very tempted to kind of argue with somebody. Or at least I'm tempted to say, man, you know, really, you know, why don't you look at things this way? And your fingers hover over the keyboard and you sort of skip a few kind of hours or minutes ahead. So you do what I don't do, basically. (laughs) Maybe it's like more censorship versus impulse control. So sometimes I just think to myself, "Ah, you know, it's not actually worth it. I enjoy Twitter because it's so easy to be provoked Mm. and because there is such a wide diversity of personality, not just views. One thing I love about Twitter is that people are kind of, they're branded. And there's no one on Twitter who kind of, well, okay, it's, there probably are people who do this, but there are very few boring people. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's like got an opinion. They've got a brand. You can kind of, when something happens, it's like part of the fun of Twitter is, I wonder what Ramon's going to say. I wonder what Jonathan's going to say. I wonder what uh, um, uh, Rebecca Davis from, uh, uh, from her point of view is going to say. And suddenly you kind of... Seeking out these people and seeing what they have to say, and it's very often very amusing. But you do kind of sometimes think to yourself, "I really want to get involved in that," because so it's ugly very quickly. I mean, do you think it's getting better? I mean, what I was wanted to get to was social media in general. Yeah. You know, uh, the world's kind of taken, well, been taken over by social media in some respects. Yeah. Um, uh, and you were an early adopter uh, of Twitter, certainly. I don't yeah. know what other platforms you enjoy. Yeah. Uh, but they've changed quite a bit. Uh, you know, I used Twitter originally to sort of make quite uh, flippant jokes yeah. about things, and 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 then it became a lot more serious. And it, it does feel like it's become quite a serious space. Yeah, you managed to keep your timeline quite uh, light um, <laughs> for the most part. Um, you know, poems about the rain uh, and, <laughs> and things like that. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a stream of consciousness. That's quite true. Yeah. Yeah, do you still enjoy it as much, and and do you think do you think that's just a natural evolution of of a platform once yeah. enough people are involved, or yeah. how things go? Well, Twitter is like it's a it's an amazing mirror of society. It probably I, I actually if I had to like pinpoint what's like the greatest invention of our age, I would very much put Twitter high high there with mobile technology in particular. I put the dishwasher at the top. <laughs> I mean, hello, yeah. change my dishwasher life. Dishwasher is a labor saving device. Twitter creates labor though. Um, but one thing I like about it is that viewpoints that were previously kind of denied to you, unless you unless you chose to like drive to 
Ranfontein and the one on the West Rand and go into a one-star <laughs> hotel where you know people will have a certain viewpoint and then go to Parkhurst and wander into a cafe with another viewpoint. Yeah, it's all kind of in a stream flowing under your fingers. And um, I just like the idea that um, there actually is very little impulse control. Thank goodness people actually don't really think before they vent their views on Twitter. I, I enjoy nothing more actually than a real kind of Twitter war. It's like terrific. I sort of sit back and watch it happening. It's like it's great. It's like from the, from the sidelines. And there always comes a point where somebody says, um, I'm sorry, but 140 characters isn't enough, which is complete nonsense. So. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, if you can't articulate your point in one sentence, absolutely you don't know. When you, you, don't when, know when you say that, the war's been lost. Bye bye. You should actually have to leave Twitter. I'm, I'm sorry, but um, the brevity of it. You know, the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln's most famous speech and one of the most famous speeches in history, is two minutes long. Two minutes. He said all that. And it's like 200 words. So brevity is like really, really important in life. And it's a for me, what I love about it too, it's a massive writing kind of discipline. Can you say something in like one, two or three sentences, uh, fitted into that amount of characters and still kind of make sense? So this is like the ultimate, this is why I'm such a good journalist tool, because a journalist's job, as I said earlier, is to make sense of the world. If you can kind of not necessarily make sense, but cast a light on things in that short a space, yeah, you're doing a good job, I think, as a journalist. And you're sharpening your writing kind of skills and your thinking skills too. So you don't think Twitter took a, a bit of a sour turn at, at in well this year actually yeah. at the beginning of this year um, there was a there was there seemed to be like a, a type of 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 uh, campaign yeah. about about uh, racism in South Africa. Uh, yeah. Whereas the past twenty two years has been actually relatively free yeah. from from race. I mean, it was used yeah. as, as policy and things like yeah. that. But this was this year was the first time I thought. Maybe I don't feel too welcome here. And then, you yeah. switch, then you switch up your phone and you go outside and you think, oh, well, yeah. well Twitter, well, look, Twitter great, doesn't actually reflect what's going on. I think one of the great massive ironies of our society, and it always amazes me, it's a paradox. You know, walk down the street, go to the CBD, yeah. wander through. Uh, you kind of don't feel kind of threatened. You don't feel like there's a tension in the air. Go onto social media, those very same people who kind of you were happily engaging with might suddenly turn on you just because you have a different viewpoint to theirs. So Twitter kind of is not the real world. Sure. At the same time, it is kind of real life and it is people's real innermost thoughts. But on an everyday level, we actually kind of, our society is remarkably kind of stable and it just kind of functions. Mm. Things kind of go haywire and they fall apart very quickly. You know, this W.B. Yeats poem, uh, The Second Coming, I mean, it goes through my head every single day. The center cannot hold, things fall apart. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Every single day that poem goes through my mind. But, you know, you still kind of live here. You still exist. You still kind of do what you need to do. And, uh, you know, things seem to be very kind of stable here. We're, we're, and they're not. We're a very unequal, messed up society. Sure. But on Twitter, you get a much bigger sense of that unequal, messed up society coming across because it's a, it's a big, very hot button political forum. Which is what I like about it. One of the things, and also because you have to express yourself in 140 words, yeah, yeah. you often have to be punchy. Yes, and punchy can be interpreted yeah. as aggressive. Yes, uh, or nasty, or you know, yeah. it's not often a, a complimentary yeah. sort of way of, of of structuring sentences and words. Absolutely, I don't know if you, I don't know if you find no, absolutely. that. Absolutely, I take those two people who are having a Twitter war, put them around a coffee table. They'll have a very different conversation with each yeah. other. They might start off aggressively, but at the end of it, they'll kind of be nodding in agreement with, on, at many things. And if not agreeing, they'll kind of agree to disagree. On Twitter, 
the kind of dark side of their personalities will come out very quickly, and it'll usually end with one blocking the other or. 140 characters isn't enough. <laughs> well, I think it goes back to our... So, Twitter is like the stand-up comedian of South yeah. Africa. So, actually, people are actually far more honest on Twitter than when, yeah. if you meet them in real life. That's right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I think one of the great things about Twitter is that it's sort of... It's not a great medium for anonymous comment. You know, it's much better for personal kind of named, branded comment. Yes. If you're anonymous on Twitter, you don't have that much credibility as someone who's prepared to put their name to their to their thoughts. You always seem to have another agenda. You seem to be a kind of agent or somebody from like a third force or something. So having your name attached to your opinions on Twitter is actually a, a very good thing. But um, but yeah, if we had to be like we are on Twitter every day in real life, we'd go nuts. We really would be... be well, isn't that part yeah. of the problem we have now is that everyone yeah. thinks their opinion counts, right? So, I yeah. mean, we've been accused of this, uh, the two of us. You know, <laughs> how dare, my, my how, opinion does how count. How dare we have a podcast? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, John Robbie's opinion is the only one that counts. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so everyone's opinion counts. Yeah. Um, people want to know everything from, you know, Kim Kardashian's most intimate to, to you know, what she's eating for yeah. breakfast. Um, everyone wants to know everything. Everyone's opinion counts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 we kind of living in that, in that sort of space. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, you know, you've, you've said, for instance, you know, we've got TED Talks as an example, yes, right? right? So oh. everyone, everyone with, with half a title behind their name eventually yeah. gets to give a TED Talk. That's right. Uh, and you, you, you think they're boring. <laughs> um, I also think they're boring <laughs> yeah. for the most but part. My attention spans, Twitter attention spans. Yes. So anything beyond that kind of, uh, yeah. But look, I think everyone's got an opinion, but are everyone's opinions equal? Legally they are. But in terms of their impact, no, they're not. Um, certain opinions will just absolutely rise to the fore and they'll become the hmm. kind of opinion of the day. And the, they'll set the agenda for the day. Um, you know, everyone can have an opinion on what the weather's like, you know. Uh, people can have an opinion on the president, but certain opinions will kind of become kind of gospel. Mm. And uh, that doesn't mean that one person's opinion is less important than another. It just means the way it's expressed, the time that it's expressed, the kind of platform will make it rise. So we've all got an equal kind of opportunity to express ourselves. The only thing restricting us really is our access to technology. So if you don't have a phone, if you don't have a smartphone and you can't tweet, you kind of deny the opportunity to be on Twitter. Um, but then again, we're becoming a more equal technological society too. You know, free Wi-Fi, I think, is one of the greatest things to happen in South Africa in our democracy. So if you have a phone and you can wander now through Pretoria and Bramfontein, and you can, you can kind of say what you want. You suddenly got. Well, you can't wander through Bramfontein. You might be hit by a rock. But we, we know what you kind of mean. Just don't if, wear if you shelter behind something. Just and, don't wear pumas shoes or, or have a cello. Yeah. Yeah, or an Uzi shirt. You yeah. must be yeah. a criminal. Then. But, but, but this is why to come back to what you were saying like way earlier, you know, this is why the media, the term the media has become kind of irrelevant because anyone with a medium and a cell phone is a medium suddenly is a member of the media um, and they can become a very influential member of the media. Mm. So using fees must fall as an example. A lot of the really kind of strongest and most impactful reporting on fees must fall has not come from professional journalists, but have come from people who just happen to be on the scene when mm. something happened. And because they have a tool in their hands, um, all they need to do is capture what's happening, and suddenly they are the media. So right. that's also what's oh, changed. Well, that, that, that's the Daily Vox's business model, in fact. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, the ones that, that are in the middle of, of the scuffle with the police, and then they write an article after the fact saying why 
it's terrible that they got hurt in that scuffle that they were filming. Anyway, it doesn't make sense. But that, that sort of guerrilla um, media yeah. provider, content producer, whatever yeah. you want to call it, do, do you think that could be the next way media will be um, produced? Uh, yeah. be, Look, uh, be, uh, independent contractors on yeah. the go, each with the iPhone, and they yes. will take a video, a two-minute video, upload it to Twitter, yeah. and viewed by everyone, but not within a, a, a corporate umbrella or anything like that. Yeah. Be Look, it's, to a large extent, it's already happening, and this is where the media, and I use the term as like an industry term, has been very slow to catch on. So citizen reporters, which you don't hear that term anymore, but the idea of somebody who just happens to be on the, in the right place at the right time and to shoot something or interview somebody or just reports on something, uh, they've kind of set the scene for what we now call mobile journalists or mojos, as they're sometimes known. So theoretically, if you have a smartphone on you, you're, you can be a journalist anytime, anywhere, any place. Where journalists, professional journalists kind of lose out is that they are kind of bound by the traditions of their profession, which is like verify and uh, don't think that this is the real story until you speak to both sides. Whereas um, an ordinary citizen with a phone will simply impulsively send out a story and it may turn out to be not the truth at all. But it's absolutely already happening where people with phones – I mean big news organizations are, are – all over the world getting rid of their photojournalists, their photographers, and are handing out iPhones to reporters. And now suddenly you are this exactly the person you describe. So it's already happening. Yeah. No, because it's interesting because, for example, in the Science Must Fall video, uh, it was fantastic yes. because, because a lot of people spoke about decolonization of, of curricula. Yeah. But, but no one actually knew what it was or the information yeah. wasn't uh, coming out well enough yeah, to explain. Yes. Gobbledygook. Yeah. And then, and then you had this one poor lady. Um, under under pressure, yeah. maybe in a moment of excitement, she expresses this opinion, and it's the most uh, satirized video yeah. of the year by That's far. Right. So, so in that one moment, you have the probably the one moment of honesty yes. around decolonization, and then yeah. the viewer looks at it and says it's complete nonsense. Yeah. But but it took it took five months yeah. you know, for that to happen, That's which right. is weird. Yeah. Look, we also we live in a soundbite society, so people want soundbites. You know? And the, the, the Public Protectors Report, for instance, 355 pages, nobody wants that all. They want, they want two or three quotes that really kind of mm. tell the story. So that particular video, now how many people are going to sit through the entire video and get the context of it and get other people's viewpoints? Mm. Very few. So what rises to the surface is the soundbite, and the soundbite is not the story. So once again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, you know, you have to be promiscuous in your consumption of media, and I think you have to be very, very skeptical of everything you see. So like skepticism is also a very good journalistic uh, instinct. You must be curious and skeptical. You mentioned fake news sites, which are kind of a bit of a plague in our, in our age, and people get fooled by them all the time. Because they are so used to taking – so you talk about trust. Right. So they're so used to trusting the media, even though they say they don't, that they'll immediately tweet and Facebook what they see and what is obviously not true. They won't stop to say, is this not true? It's something – it comes from the media. It must yes. be true. Yes. So oddly enough, people do trust the media. They, they over-trust the media. They should be far more skeptical. What do you think of journalists wanting to ban – so-called fake news sites. And I, I, I think that's crazy. I think, first of all, it's completely undoable. Yes. You know, 
Who is like Mr. or Mrs. Internet? Who do you go to and say, I want these sites to be banned? You just absolutely can't do it. It's, uh, and, and, and also, well, unless you want to become like North Korea, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You actually can't do it. And, and also, I've heard the argument being made that potentially it causes huge harm to publish fake news. It's like shouting fire in a crowded theater. Yes. But people who say that can never actually provide a solid example of it ever having happened. Yeah. And I would argue that actually it's the real news that keeps shouting fire uh, <laughs> when there isn't one. I mean, right. uh, the reason, yeah. the, the, you know, the reason uh, the American election so close between two terrible yeah. candidates is they keep shouting fire about <laughs> the one. Um, yeah. And, and, and w- even when something really bad comes yeah. out, that soundbite you talk about, yeah. you know, grabbing them yeah. by the so and so. So I, I think, yeah. and we have South African examples of that. Yeah. Um, fake news is a, is a business model. Get people to click and you can sell Google ads or whatever yes. other um, model yeah, you yeah, have. That's the whole point. Yeah. So I think fake news has a role to play in our society in that, in that it, if it just makes you kind of a little bit more mm. skeptical next time and you don't immediately, what's good is that every time I see one of these stories on Facebook and they're obviously fake news stories, you just know that in the comments, the first one or two are going to say this is actually a hoax, it's not true. Uh, so people are catching on to that. Mm. But banning anything. Banning any kind yeah. of media. Music to our ears. Yeah, it's just, it's, it doesn't yeah. work. It, in the age of the pre-internet age, sure, it might have worked. Sure. But how can you actually ban anything on the internet? Even, even Twitter very, very rarely bans people for extreme hate speech. It's extremely difficult to do. Sure. Yeah, so you have to live with these things and you have to kind of, I think what you have to do is counter them and kind of make uh, uh, good media and the, make the truth kind of rise above that. Well, that was my argument to yeah. to the Man and Guardian uh, because they, I think, I think Philip Devet wrote a piece about fake yeah. news sites, and I said, "Why is it too much competition for you?" <laughs> they didn't respond. Yeah, uh, yeah I was so right to Philip. But, I was quite pleasant that he didn't respond. I because, don't think he engages. I mean, if, if we take the example of fake news, the the story about Musi Mamane being uh, what you call it, uh, molded by uh, yeah, F.W. De Klerk, exactly, yeah. which they stood behind for yeah. a whole week, and then it was yeah. fake. Yeah. So do you want to ban yourself as well? Yeah. People make mistakes. Some people do it maliciously. Some That's people right. do it well, negligently. The answer seems very simple. They should just buy ads on the <laughs> fake ad sites, and then people would click through to them. Yeah. Look, fake news, the, the, the disclaimer is that it's satire. So if you can say that this is a satirical site, you can actually get away with anything. Now, you can't objectively define satire. So you can't ever, and I hope no one ever does this, come up with a law that says this kind of satire is okay, but this kind of satire is actually not good, so we want to ban it. The satire ombudsman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a very satirizable subject. That, yeah. But, uh, but no, look, people, people must just develop a healthy sense of skepticism, and they must be broad in their thinking. They must open their minds rather than close their minds. And what banning does is it closes minds. Yeah. So as soon as you have uh, anything banned, we've been through that, you know. Why do we have to like even think of going through it again? So, so basically, you're saying, um, guys, journalists must open their mind and be skeptical and do their jobs properly. That's what that's what I heard. That's it. An hour of a that's show, and, and that's what we've got. That's what we got. And we're just going to paraphrase it that way, whether you like it or not. That's the soundbite for the show. Absolutely. <laughs> like, look, uh, journalists are incredibly self-critical. The most self-critical people I know are journalists. So we're very introspective. We're very self-critical, uh, but we also incredibly defensive about attacks from the outside so as you said jonathan when uh, you know when the media is kind of uh, uh, under threat or accused then suddenly we are all the media but as individuals yeah we're incredibly competitive incredibly self-critical which i think is good makes it life interesting Awesome. Thank you yeah. for joining us. Oh, uh, yeah, Gus, that was, it was a good chat. Great conversation. See, I just told you it would be fun. Thank you so much. Well, when did I say it wouldn't be fun? At the beginning of the show, everyone rewind, go listen to it a second time. <laughs>
There you go. I, I, Final thoughts, Ramon. I can't confirm or deny. <laughs> Going to run um, out of cool music in the background. Right. Mail and Guardian, I know you listen. Please unblock me. <laughs> For freedom fat, of speech. Fat chance. All right. Uh, you can find Gus on Twitter at Gus Silver. Um, should be very easy to find. He's the typewriter with the uh, South African flag in the background. Um, if you want to see what he looks like, we're going to take a photo and it'll be up on the site. Uh, you can find us uh, at renegade underscore report on Gus's favorite Twitter, uh, on Facebook as well. Give us a like. Tell your friends about us. If you're listening on iTunes, please give us a review and you can also give us a rating. So if you really don't like us, we're uh, happy to hear about it. Thanks so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Central.com